The United States is the latest country to threaten economic sanctions against Myanmar's military leaders, who staged a coup on Sunday by detaining the country's democratically elected leaders. Austria announces a plan to reopen parts of its economy. We'll assess the coronavirus lockdown still in place in many parts of the world and discuss the impact they're having. And the art of browsing. We'll consider how bricks and mortar retailers can lure shoppers back across the threshold when they open their doors once again. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 2nd of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today to cast their expert eyes across some of the day's big news stories are Monocle's Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker, he's in Milan for us and Monocle 24's Daniel Bache who is in London. Daniel, Ed, great to have you both on the programme with us today. Um, I've got a question for you both to start today's programme. Do you know what day it is today in the US, I suppose? It would be fair to hone that in. I'm going with Groundhog Day. You win. Top prize, Daniel. <laughs> How's Groundhog Day treating you today? It's actually beautiful in London today. Uh, sun came out for a little bit and it's, uh, it's rather mild for uh, a February day. I'll take it. Can't complain over here. And Ed, just before we came on the air, there was some quite sad news that broke in the UK, wasn't there? One of the sort of key heroes, I suppose, you could describe him like that from the from the UK during the pandemic, has uh, sadly passed away. Yeah, Captain Sir Tom Moore died at the age of 100 after testing positive for COVID. Just, you know, really sad news. I don't know if uh, all our international listeners will know him. But I think that his name did uh, travel across to different countries around the world. It was a pretty inspiring story. He raised a whopping £38.9 million for the National Health Service by doing this this walking on on a Zimmer frame. And, and just a sort of image of him doing that, of course, someone who was also a Second World War veteran. And I believe I was based in New York at the time, so I didn't get all the details that perhaps being in the UK would have revealed. But there was a song, I believe, Tomas, as well. Did you listen to that at the time? Do you know what? I didn't listen to that, but I think many people did. And didn't didn't he get to number one in the British music charts as well, I it think? He did. I did, I believe. Quite an incredible set of achievements. And I think part of the, the campaign around him by his children, I believe, was to, to send birthday cards to him for his 100th birthday. And I'm sure there were many, many Canadians, if I remember the Canadian reportage at the time, who, who joined in and put pen to paper and sent him a birthday card to mark his 100th birthday birthday after his amazing achievement. He was also knighted by the Queen. He was knighted by the Queen, Captain Sir Tom Moore. A very sad note to start today's programme. But Ed, Daniel, great to have you with us on the show today. Well, we begin today's programme with the United Nations Security Council, which is meeting today for an emergency session to discuss the coup in Myanmar, where the country's military took control on Sunday by detaining several members of its democratically elected government, including the country's leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. The United States yesterday became the latest country to suggest new economic sanctions could be placed upon the country in response to the coup. Well, a little earlier today, here on Monocle 24, our 
correspondent in Bangkok, Gwen Robinson, explained why US President Joe Biden was mulling new sanctions on Myanmar. It really is putting his money where his mouth is. That is at least to promise to look into it. It may not come to that. And in fact, these days, I think there's a lot of feeling even amongst human rights groups that punishing a country with harsh economic sanctions only punishes people. So that will be a very big debate. But I think if there's bloodshed, I really doubt the US has much choice except to go down that path. Gwen Robinson there, Monocle's Bangkok correspondent, speaking to us on today's edition of The Globalist. Well, among those countries who are being closely watched in terms of their response to the military's actions in Myanmar is China. Ronan Lee is the author of the new book, Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History and Hate Speech. And he told us a little earlier today why China's officials will be considering their response particularly carefully. The perception has been that China would defend its friendly neighbour Myanmar and would protect Myanmar in bodies like the Security Council. But it's not in China's interest for Myanmar to resolve its internal political issues through coups. China will be aware that the overwhelming majority of people in Myanmar want democratic leadership of the country. There's been an election where overwhelmingly the military's party was rejected. And China will know that endorsing coups in Myanmar means they're endorsing instability. It's going to affect investment. It creates problems in terms of instability on its borders. So I think that there is some possibility that there might be a more cooperative approach between China and the US on Myanmar. Ronan Lee there speaking to us on The Globalist earlier today. Um, Ed, in Milan, to begin with you and to go back to the US's reported responses to this situation that is still under discussion, as we heard from Gwen Robinson there a few moments ago. How challenging a foreign policy issue is this for President Biden, do you think, in these early days of his presidency? Yeah, I mean, I think that's super interesting because, as you say, it is early days. It's such a uh, a new presidency and uh, this is kind of the first big uh, international news event that it's had to deal with. And I think it's still defining its language. And, and when you talk about language, you know, one word can have so much weight. And so that's why the White House and this administration has been weighing uh, whether or not to use the word coup because language is loaded and language means a lot. Um, and so at the moment, we haven't seen that. We've basically been seeing wordage like talking about a direct assault on the country's transition to democracy, which is, uh, you know, let's be honest, a little wordier. But, you know, the US government uh, stopped sanctions against Myanmar about a decade ago, and it's been supporting uh, this uh, this transition towards democracy. Um, and so if it were to announce a coup, that may have uh, an influence on how it's been helping and supporting the government before that. So obviously, like the language and its actions will have implications on its involvement. So it'll be interesting to see what Biden does. Uh, there's talk of um, sanctions as well. We have to see how firm a response the US wants to wants to take what we do know uh, from everything we sort of know about Joe Biden as a character. And this new administration is that uh, Biden will 
despite obviously still having to decide about language, he will take a more involved uh, role internationally as a sort of uh, voice uh, on the world scene. And uh, we won't expect the Biden administration to not at least comment on things like this. It will be a marked difference in many ways. I'm not specifically talking about Myanmar, but just international relations in general. We're going to see Biden uh, being more involved in these sorts of things. Yeah, a very interesting one. In some ways, it is a different country than it was in the 80s and 90s. And in many ways, it's very similar. You know, there was a lot of hope for the country a decade ago when Hillary Clinton uh, visited as Secretary of State and and later President Barack Obama himself visited Myanmar, uh, which was an incredible moment for the people in the country. And also for people right around the world, because it put Myanmar back on the map. And a, a lot of people were hoping something would come of that. But you know, we saw incredible protests in in 2007 and what was called the Saffron Revolution, and that was over uh, began over high fuel prices. Uh, you know, before there were student-led protests in the the 1980s, which saw Aung San Suu Kyi arrested and put under house arrest for the first time. But as the country began opening up a decade ago in 2011. You know, part of the situation was that the military retained a lot of their power. In reality, it was uh, the generals taking off their uniforms and and simply putting on suits. They uh, had a mandated uh, 25% in the parliament, at least 25%. And uh, you almost had the feeling the past decade that there would be some backsliding and we would be in this exact situation again, not to sound like the ultimate cynic, but there's a ton at play here. And it was interesting to hear Ronan Lee talk about where the cooperation would be between the US and China. The US obviously can be a a great arbiter and and has a lot of sway here. We talked about sanctions and what those would mean. China has a huge interest in the country. And that I think is the biggest factor to keep an eye on here. Myanmar is a resource-rich country, incredibly resource-rich, and China has been very involved for a long, long time uh, and trying to shore up their position there. So so that's something they'll keep an eye on. And interesting to look at their uh, foreign ministry's uh, spokesman and his very uh, lukewarm response to events that have been happening there. He uh, uh, basically gave a shrug and uh, said, we're, we're working on figuring out what the situation is there. Uh, right now. But there's a lot of long-running conflicts in the country which complicate things. Uh, Some of the oldest conflicts in the world, running conflicts, in fact, uh, the Karen people, Kachin people, the Christian people to the north, and of course the Rohingya Muslims, which have been mentioned here. Uh, Almost a million people have become refugees, and and, uh, that, of course, is is incredibly concerning still. It's a very poor country, a very diverse country, but the the issue really is there's no uh, organization uh, or alternative to the military that has sort of the clout and has the organization to, to really gain momentum. We saw a landslide for the National League for Democracy Party of Aung San Suu Kyi in the November's elections, which obviously uh, the military was very concerned about. Uh, but the reality is they uh, restricted a lot of the voting amongst Myanmar's many, many ethnic communities. Uh, so there was only so many people that were, in fact, allowed to vote. So the uh, so perhaps they're right in talking about election irregularities because uh, there certainly were. But 
uh, moving forward. It, it, it's a quite a concern, concerning situation, but I don't really know uh, how much more arm twisting there can be. There's not much of an alternative there. Uh, Japan, South Korea, other Asian nations have stepped up massively uh, in trying to invest in infrastructure in the country, but it's really China that holds a lot of the cards here. So uh, an interesting one to watch. And, and I'll be curious to see what the UN comes up with uh, today and in the days ahead. And we will be keeping watch here at Monocle 24 in the days ahead too with our correspondents in the region. But next here on the late edition, Austria has unveiled plans to relax some of the coronavirus restrictions that have been put in place for some weeks by this stage to curb the infection rate of the virus. While Austria's lockdown will officially be extended, some businesses, including hairdressers and some beauty parlours, will be allowed to reopen. It adds to a mixed picture of lockdowns in Europe. While in some countries, like Germany, strict lockdown rules remain in place, parts of Italy are relatively open once again. Well, Tyler Brule, Monocle's editorial director, spoke to us a little earlier today on why restrictions had been so different in so many parts of the world, but in many cases the results, that is the trajectory of the virus, had in so many cases been the same. I think there's going to be a reckoning. People are going to have to do the math on all of this. And I think this is one of the, the really interesting points. Because this has been moving at such a speed, you, know, you have a lot of experts who are asking questions, saying, have we really been documenting what actually worked? If we have to go through this again, and good heavens, we hope not, then what really works and what makes sense and what is proportionate, of course, for an open society and for an economy which needs to function? Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, there, speaking to us on the line from Zurich a little earlier today. Uh, Daniel, uh, to move away from Europe, Canada, your home country, is one of those places that is tightening its restrictions at the moment. How would you characterise where Canada is right now in terms of its work to curb the spread of the virus? Yeah, really interesting uh, one, Tomas. Obviously, Canada's in a pretty tough situation right now, uh, well, as it has been uh, for many months, but uh, it seems things aren't getting better much uh, as quickly as, as was expected. The big issue really there is vaccine distribution. Of course, uh, all the provinces have been up in arms with the federal government over that distribution and asking for things to be sped up. Uh, we saw, you know, what almost amounted to a, a major crisis or, or what is a major crisis, but uh, almost erupted in, in a worse situation here in Europe last week over uh, AstraZeneca and, and all of the vaccine manufacturers uh, not being able to produce uh, what they have pledged to produce and what has been uh, purchased by all the different countries. But uh, for Canada, it's a, it's a wait and see how they'll be able to get and then distribute these vaccines. It's been really interesting to watch uh, as a Canadian here in Britain, of course, which has been lauded for its incredible rollout of the vaccine because of the National Health Service, of course, in Canada, it's much more fragmented. You have provincial authorities and, uh, you know, there's just a lot more uh, confusion, I think. It, it's not a, quite a seamless picture of, of how it's going to work. So that's one thing, Tomas, which I, which is, is still very concerning. Uh, the other thing, and to Tyler's point, uh, is what is really working uh, as we move forward? Is anyone really paying attention to that? I mean, the one thing that is concerning to me here uh, as vaccinations are, are rolled out quite quickly is that 
you know, they're completely ignoring the the the, the, this, the recommended schedule for second doses. So while we talk about how many people have received that first dose, well, what's the impact when people don't get that second dose? And then when you decide we send kids back to school and we open up again, what's the impact there? Numbers are going down, but will that continue in the right way in the way we want it to? So still a lot of uncertainty there and a, and a lot of questions, but I have to say it's it's quite alarming some days to watch the news and and compare things between Canada and the UK. You know, at times here there were over a thousand deaths a day, and in parts of eastern Canada, when there's three, four, ten new cases of coronavirus, they talk about uh, closing the borders between provinces. So I think there's there's still a different uh, two different sort of scales of this uh, around the world. But let's let's hope that people are are, are taking stock and 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 really understanding where the impact can be in lowering uh, in lowering cases and, and getting things going again. And Ed, the view from Italy, is there a sense that some of the relaxations taking place are being well managed and that the reopening isn't a rushed one, that it isn't having the undesired effect of bringing the virus back out into the general circulation again? Yeah, really difficult to know because, uh, yeah, the loosening up that's happened here only started yesterday on Monday. um, And so it's early days. I mean, let's look at the case of Lombardy, where I am. Uh, Of course, Milan is the capital of that region. Um, There was... a sort of mess up uh, over figures because basically what happens is regions send figures to national governments and together they work out which uh, color coding uh, each region is going to be in red being the most severe orange being one step down and yellow being the least severe there was a bit of a sort of uh, spat between region and national government each accusing the other basically Lombardy went into red zone not so long after Christmas but it turned out those figures were incorrect we then went to the orange zone and we're now in yellow all in the space of a few weeks so we've basically gone for a sort of semi-lockdown a semi-total lockdown to uh, things changing and bars and restaurants are now open until 6 p.m people are back at school shops have been open as part of this orange zone but you know there are a lot more people out and about sort of headlines over the weekend even before we we uh, went into this new zoning were saying that lots of people were getting together this word they called assembramento which is like assembly this sort of big fear of too many people congregating in one one place uh, walking around sort of yesterday I saw you know people are in restaurants people are enjoying a glass of wine and some food here in, in Milan um, I don't know if it's too much too soon it feels quite sudden uh, the situation is fair stable in the sense that the cases seem to be ranging from about 8,000 to 12,000 a day and so in a country where uh, the economy is stagnated and it suffered a lot from the pandemic I guess the good thing is that this will be a, a, a stimulus for the economy there'll be people spending money going out and about we'll have to watch over the next few weeks and see whether there is a spike and there needs to be a change in these relaxations of rules. I hope not, but seeing as we're still in winter, it's still pretty cold, uh, people having to be inside, uh, my fear is that could happen, but let's hope not. Well, let's stay with the relaxation of coronavirus rules, finally here on the late edition, as we turn our attention to retail. In the past week in the United Kingdom, we've seen major online retailers snap up marquee retail that have entered administration 
during the pandemic. The key part of these sales is the brands are being bought, but not the physical retail spaces that are housed in city and town centres right across the country. Well, as Donna Thomas, the fashion industry commentator and Monocle 24 regular, explained to us a little earlier today, there is one aspect of the retail experience that may be a key part of the recovery of bricks and mortar retail, something that can't be replicated online, the art of browsing. We can find all the same stuff online as we could before find all the same stuff in a big box store or a chain store like Topshop, which you know had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stores throughout the UK and thousands throughout the world. So you go into one, you see the same dress, you go into the other and see, or you go online and you see. And what you'll find when you go into high street shops that are now owned by somebody nearby who really are cultivating and curating what they have to offer, browsing will come back because you'll want to go in and say, what do they have now that's different than anything else I'll ever find any other place? Donna Thomas there speaking to us a little earlier today. Daniel, you host The Entrepreneurs here on Monocle 24 and it's appeared to me that there's been a lot of gloom in the British press about what happens next to these big empty uh, shop spaces. But as Donna mentioned there, there are certainly areas of opportunity in rethinking the kind of businesses they house in the future, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. A hugely interesting space to watch, I think. It's been certainly difficult uh, for physical retailers in the past year, which comes uh, at a time when digital and and e-commerce has grown like never before. But at the same time, uh, I, I think Dana pointed out some really interesting things there about where shops are the same right around the world. And you wonder why in this day and age, people would then go there. I mean, a great example, Tomas, could be something like Starbucks, which I think in the past week uh, alone has has closed something like 25 of its locations just in downtown Toronto, which is incredible. You look at bigger retailers, which are seen right around the world, uh, like an H&M, like a Zara, which occupy, you know, great real estate in cities all over the world, which is almost to those cities' detriment in some cases. You think, oh, great, another big box chain store. What does that add to the to the fabric of a place? But I think there's a lot that will shift, as you allude to, in the coming months, in the year ahead, especially as the world starts to open up, up again and people are looking to get out and, and looking to have experiences again. And and perhaps that's an exciting opportunity in the uh, real estate and property sector where we might be more interested in uh, allowing smaller companies to have temporary leases or shorter leases or, um, you know, uh, occupy spaces that they might not have been able to in the past. But, uh, you know, that all comes with the reality of the fact that e-commerce has come a long way. You know, right around Christmas time, I had a, a conversation with uh, Michelle Romano, who you might know, Tomas. She's uh, uh, one of the dragons on, on CBC's Dragon's Den in Canada and uh, the head of a company called ClearBank, which is a, an investor in e-commerce. And she said, look, in lockdown in the past year, what has happened with online and digital shopping has advanced by a decade. So there, you know, we're a decade ahead of where everyone thought we would be. So that is becoming really refined. And there are a lot of great options there. Obviously, we've seen how far delivery and click and collect has come in the past year. So I think great companies, great brands, uh, and great problem solvers are going to have to start coming up with solutions on why we would need retail in creating experiences for people. And I think there's 
uh, a lot of opportunities and beyond just uh, you know uh, special drops like a you know, a brand like Supreme might do to have uh, kids line up around the block. There has to be a little bit more than that, but I think people are thinking very heavily in this exact space right now, Tomas. What else can be done to uh, bring a brand value add? And that conversation was already sort of happening before the pandemic, which is really good. Why would we pay for this very expensive retail space? And what are we going to use that for? Obviously, we know the value of being able to touch and feel and to interact with brands. Uh, but I think those experiences will change a lot, which is a great thing for, for all of us and for retail in general. You know, there have been several occasions when I've ordered something online and it just simply doesn't fit. There is no substitute for getting out there, trying something on, touching something yourself, being in that experience. And I think, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the places that do better than other retail uh, are ones that are able to offer that experience. It's a bit of a buzzword now for retail, but it, it's true. You see the old some of these old department stores struggling. And then you see the Nordstroms of this world, without wanting to name drop one brand in particular, but there you go, um, it, who have offered a bit more of an experience with food and restaurants and other things going on, have done better. So I think, yes, there will be a need. Of course, some people will be wary about getting out there, mixing again, etc. But at the end of the day, it, it, it's uh, an experience going out there and, and seeing things for yourself and also being in and around other people. So... In particular, I like doing it with books, which, you know, it's not, it's not the same as some other things. But just even even going into a bookshop and thumbing through a book, reading the back of it is so much uh, more um, pleasurable than than sort of trying to look for something online. Well, Ed Stocker and Daniel Bache, it's always a pleasure to browse the day's news stories with you two. You see what I did there. Thank you both very much for being with us on the programme today. A big thank you too to Sam Impey who edited today's programme in London. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow but do stay with us here on Monocle 24 for more news, more discussion and much more too. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Monocle.